1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3. I told my wife this morning, I said, I get to preach a K-Love message this morning. Yeah. Uh, positive and encouraging. And uh, we probably need it after the song selection this morning. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, that's, but that's good. Uh, God in His sovereignty saw fit to... Uh, to sing depth of mercy, and then to sing, uh, and then to, to hear his word from John chapter 3, the end of chapter 3. Uh, let me say, as we, uh, as we work through uh, John, 1 John chapter 3, uh, and, 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 and in thinking about songs that we just sang, uh, you know, a lot of churches work through and, and think upon the, the kind of the happy thoughts of the Christian life, and that's kind of where they dwell most of the time, uh, never to venture into the things that would cause people to think bad about themselves. Then you've got other churches that are probably a little more like ours that want to help you all the time think badly about yourself. Um, we're trying to prep everyone to have a really awesome psychology department eventually, because you're all going to need psychiatric help. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, and, and, and to just do that would be bad, you know, to just either extreme would be, would be terrible, would not be the gospel. Uh, the problem, though, is that many churches, many people want to start with all the wonderful things and just think highly about everyone, including ourselves, and then all there's Jesus, and he just makes our good all, he makes that better. And that's not the gospel either. The gospel is, is we could do nothing good apart from God. And that we are dreadful sinners, but God is so good that He rescued us from that. You see, if we're just good people who God is making better, then we really don't need God. And we certainly don't need the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But if we are incapable of doing good apart from God, then we are desperately in need of God. <clears throat> so, as we, as we think through these songs and as we just as a church, just grow. Um, I hope you understand that if you walk out, even singing a song like that, if you walk out of that song going, oh man, life is terrible, then you don't get the gospel. Uh, I want to encourage you, that, that very last uh, kind of verse and that, even that last song just really grasps or helps us understand the gospel, that Jesus bleeds and loves me still. Jesus dies and loves me still, right? So yes, dreadful sinner, but then Jesus did this because he loves me. That's the gospel, right? So, uh, as, we, as we think upon those things, let's go to First John chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 19 through 24 this morning. But we're going to jump back to verse 16 because it kind of helps set the context a little bit for us as we work through 19 through 24. So let's read 16 through 24. He says this, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, 
but in deed and in truth. And then that as kind of a backdrop to what we're going to talk about this morning in verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and, a re- and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Let's pray. Father, as we work through Your words this morning, I pray that they would, that they would help us worship you uh, more fully, more consuming of our lives, that we would be giving ourselves to, to worshiping you because we know you and, and, and you've revealed yourself to us so that we might know you. And, and uh, Father, I just pray that uh, you would open our hearts to receive the beauty of what you're saying here in this passage. Father, help me speak with clarity. And help your saints to hear with clarity. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Alright, so here we have a slight shift in tone from John. Uh, I hope that that's noticeable. I hope you're familiar enough with John to go, huh, okay, something's a little different in this passage. John has been building so far this scene of what it looks like to follow Jesus. He's kind of been painting the picture, if you think of artistry, He's kind of painting the picture so far of what it looks like for someone to follow Jesus. He's kind of writing the screenplay. Uh, if you think about, a, uh, think about a movie, he's kind of writing the script. This is what it looks like for someone to follow Jesus. And in that script, you have things like belief in the incarnate Son of God. Belief that God came in the flesh. By implication, we talked about how that's belief in uh, to having right belief, um, right belief, and we're going to talk a little bit f- more about that in a little bit later today. The second thing we kind of we've seen as as John has painted this picture for us of what it means to follow Jesus is, or how uh, to put it in the terms of our series of what it looks like for someone who knows that they know God, right. So, in belief in the incarnate Son of God. And the second is a life of righteousness and obedience to His commands. John says, if you don't live a life of righteousness and seeking obedience to His commands, then you don't know God. You have a God. You know a God. He's just not the God. So there's this righteousness and this, this bent towards obedience. Like your heart isn't bent towards doing whatever you want to do. It's a heart bent towards doing what God wants you to do. And I hope you see that in this picture, I was thinking of it this kind of this way this morning. Uh, it's kind of like this. If you were in the process of becoming a duck, I don't know why a duck, it's just the first animal that came to my mind. If you're in the process of becoming a duck, right, would you um, be play, worried about playing the guitar anymore? Would you? Probably not, because you wouldn't have the fingers to play guitar. 
Uh, would you be worried about eating a steak anymore? Well, you might miss it, but you realize it's not for you anymore, right? It, for you, it's grass. You become a vegan, okay? Uh, that's kind of a bummer, but, uh, um, but you're not worried about eating a steak anymore, right? You might want to eat that steak, but you're slowly, your desire is changing from eating that steak to now this is what's good for me. This grass, this, these, this vegetation, these you know, little bugs or whatever I'm supposed to eat. This is the bread from the park. Like this is, well, maybe not the bread from the park, but the other stuff is good for me, right? This is good. My desires are beginning to change. That's what it's like. That, that's, I, and I guess maybe I was, you know, kind of quacks like a duck, walks like a duck, must be a duck. Well, that's the problem is that many of us say we're Christians, but we don't walk like a Christian. We don't talk like a Christian. And that's the danger. And John is saying that, if your being is, has been changed to being a Christian, a follower of God, you have a redeemed heart, then you'll walk like one with a redeemed heart. You'll talk like one with a redeemed heart. You'll make decisions like one with a redeemed heart. You'll walk like a duck. You'll quack like a duck. I know for some of you that might not be as masculine. So you'll walk like a lion and talk like a lion, Right? For you men, that might fit a little bit better. I don't know why a duck, it just came to me. I must have been dreaming about ducks last night. <clears throat> so, when John says this, this righteousness and this obedience, it's not, I, w- I would even argue it's, it's something we have to work hard at, but it's not something that it becomes a law to us. It's just something that should come natural from us, the desire to do what's lawful, the desire to obey God and do what's righteous. The desire for that is something that comes natural because you're a follower of Jesus. The hard part is following through with it because then your heart's going to start getting distracted by sin and unrighteousness and so on and so forth. But the desire, like the bend towards that, is, um, is what should be coming natural as a part of your being. I guess the last thing I would use to kind of describe that is if, if you ever paid attention to trees, uh, the way they tend to grow is like they'll grow towards where the sun's coming from, right? They, they bend towards that. I've seen trees like out in the woods, you know, in a forest where there's like real tall trees and places I go hunting, you know, real, real tall trees. And, and then you'll have like a, like maybe where a tree fell, but like the, the opening in the canopy is like over here. Well, you had this younger tree kind of growing here, and then all of a sudden this tree was going straight, and then over the past 20 years, you know, the tree started growing like this. Well, why? Because it was shooting towards that opening. It was bent towards the light. And someone who's a follower of Christ, someone who has a new heart, will have a bend towards the light. So John, again, is painting this picture. So a life of righteousness and obedience to his commands. And then most recently, as we talked about last week, the past couple weeks, is this uh, a more specific instance of obedience, and that is love for the brethren, love for the body of Christ. Well, we just got done reading in 16 through 18 when he talks about... Uh, you know, if anyone has the world's goods and, but sees a brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, this is not applicable. I mean, surely there's things we can learn, but this is, his point here is not go help the homeless person down the road. There's other passages that would help us understand that we have a responsibility to care for the poor, but that's not John's point here. 
This is not a love and, and a help for just people in general. This is a love and a help and a caring for the people in your body, in the church. This is a context. So to be careful that we, again, that we don't have a, we see this as a command to love and care for humanity in general. This is a, uh, this is a call for you to look at the person down the aisle from you right now and to look at them and go, how am I caring for them? This is John's context. And he says, this is what it looks like for someone who's a follower of Jesus. Now, John is going to turn to dealing, so he turns kind of from this picture of what it means to follow someone, for someone to follow Jesus. Now he's going to turn to dealing with a heart that even after evaluation of the previous things we just talked about, still says that maybe I'm not right with God. Maybe I don't really know God. So this is for someone who, who goes, okay, I look at those things. I, I, I love the brethren, but I just don't love the brethren like I should. I'm not giving you know, to my brother like I should. And, and, I, and I want to obey God's commands, and, but, but I just, I, I'm not that good at it. I'm failing right now. And, and, and I, um, you know, I, I, I believe in the incarnate Son of God, but I know my beliefs are not, are not perfect. And, and, and maybe, maybe I don't know God. Maybe, maybe I really don't know who He is. Maybe I should have these things handled. This passage is for you. I know in my walk, there's many times, all the time, where I look at my life and go, man, you know, yes, I'm trying to be obedient, but I'm failing. And then my heart says, well, do you really know who God is? Are you really a follower of God? Because maybe you're not. This passage is for you. And let me tell you this, if that day hasn't come, it will come. If it hasn't come, it will come. Now let me warn us, John is not talking here to people who haphazardly follow God, or think about God a couple times a week when it's convenient for them, or pray to God only when it's hard and we need help. John's not ta- He's already talked to you, and he said you don't know God, you're lost and going to hell. That's what he has said so far. He's talking to a different crowd of people now when he gets to this point. The context of the text here is to those who are seeking hard after God. Again, this is after those who are becoming ducks but just aren't quacking perfectly yet. Does that make sense? Who are walking like ducks but just aren't walking like it perfectly yet. But this is to those who have not separated righteous being from doing. Like righteous doing. These are people who are still living righteously or trying to live righteously. This is for those who have not dehumanized the Son of God, who, who have right belief concerning the Son of God. This is for those who have not forsaken the body of Christ. That's who this passage is for. John's concern is for how this condemning heart impacts a child of God, particularly in that child of God's approaching God himself. So think about this. If you live your life with a, with a condemning heart, when that heart is saying to you, I don't think you're right with God. How is that going to impact your relationship with the Father? Are you going to want to go talk to the Father? 
Shake your head, yes or no. Are you going to want to go talk to the Father if your heart's telling you you're condemned? I'm not going to want to go talk to the Father. I mean, if I know my daddy's going to beat me, I don't want to go talk to him, right? Or if I don't, then how's that going to impact your, your walk and your and you're, you're impacting this world for Christ. Like, how's that going to impact that? It's going to be terrible. So John's main purpose here, guys, if you want to write down, this is his main purpose. John wants to give assurance to those, to us, so that we may approach God in prayer with confidence. John wants to give assurance to those with a condemning heart so that they might approach God in prayer with confidence. <clears throat> Again, I don't think this is a matter of if you ever have a heart that condemns you. I think if you have a serious heart for God, this will happen. You will have that moment, those moments when your heart says, yeah, Matt, yeah, I just don't, I just don't think you're a follower of Jesus. You're too evil. Now as we study, John will present kind of two sources of assurance in this passage. Two sources of assurance. One is a human source, and the other a divine source. One is a human source, the other is a divine source. The human source is an examination of our beliefs and actions. That's a lot of what we've been talking about already. An evaluation of our beliefs and actions, our doing. And through that, we should be able to find some assurance of our faith. So you're going to talk about that as a source. The other source is a divine source. So when we do this, when, when we are redeemed, the Spirit inwardly assures us of our spiritual position or our spiritual being or our spiritual identity. This divine source, the Spirit speaking inwardly to us. Now this passage, I have to admit, I, as I started preparing last week, we were supposed to preach all the way through chapter, uh, verse 24 uh, and I honestly, I had no, no, no kidding, I got to verse 18, I was like, okay, this is good, and I'm studying along and writing the sermon for last week, and then I get to verse 19, and I go, there's not enough time left in the week for me to figure out what the heck is going on in verse 19, uh, because verse 19 is, is a little challenging, I think, to understand. Uh, so that's when I decided, okay, we're going to stop at 18, because there's not enough hours left, and we'll pick up on 19 next week. So I say that to say 19 is a, a little challenging, um, but I think we'll work through it. I think, we'll, I think you guys will get it, and, we'll, uh, and we'll, we'll move forward here. But it's a little hard. But John relates, here's what he does. He relates the divine aspect of assurance and the human aspect of assurance in kind of a paradoxical fashion. So he takes kind of the divine and the human assurance, these, and kind of relates them in a way that is seemingly absurd or even self-contradictory. Like they, they don't seem to really go together. How do these things go together? That's, that's what I mean by paradoxical. So that's, that's part of where it's a little hard for us to understand. It's going, okay, we got this divine part, we got this human part. How do, how do these things fit together? So we're going to try to work through that. And then, of course, in house gatherings, we'll, we'll press on through this even further and what it looks like more practically. But... Let's move forward with the passage. The first thing that we see in this passage is this. You can trust God with your redemption. You can trust God with your redemption. 
Now, I've been getting accused of not giving you all time to fill in your blank and then going on to the verse. So I'm going to give you a few moments here to, to write down redemption. If you need help spelling it, it's up on the screen. I'm just kidding. Okay. If I have everybody's eyes, we'll move forward. First John chapter 3, verse 19 through 20. Let's read these. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. There's so much packed in here. He says this, by this we shall know. What is he talking about? See, sometimes that by this we shall know, the by this is stuff that follows, and sometimes the by this is the stuff that preceded it. In the previous passage, it's the by this is the stuff that follows it. This time it's by this is the stuff that preceded us. So he's saying the stuff that preceded what I've just, right now, verse 19, the stuff that's just preceded this, it's by that stuff that we shall know. So John is reaching back to what he just said. Now, what did he just reach back? What did he, what did he just say? Well, part of it is it's our obedience to the command to love one another, specifically love those in the body, that is the basis for knowing that we know God. So by this, by this, by this love for the brethren, we shall know that we are of the truth or that we know God. How do we know that we know God? We love the brethren. And guys, there's a sense here that this love for the brethren is a love that's far greater than our love for those who do not know and follow Jesus. It's not a a love in the sense that we disregard those who don't know and follow Jesus, but there's a unique love. There's a call to lay down our lives for those in the church. So the key points, kind of in what we just talked about, like last week, we love each other in the small things. We talked about last week about how, you know, many of us, I think, would take a bullet for someone else in the body, but are we willing to give up and sacrifice for them between now and the time that someone wants to pull a trigger? Because see, John's point is not just, okay, so if the day ever came that you would need to give up your life, do you need to give up your life? That's not John's point. John's point is, what are you doing between now and then? Because then he gets down to this, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart. You know, so it's more than just willing to die, but it's willing to die to yourself daily in order to live sacrificially for your brothers. That's one key point. Another key point is that we love each other in the big things as well. And then we give preference to each other. I would say, you know, when it comes, just as a personal thought here, when it comes to thinking of living in community with each other, if we would just get down the idea of Scripture teaches us to give preference to each other, that would solve a lot of things, a lot of problems. If, if it would stop being about me and be more about those around me, then that would solve a lot of problems. So, John is saying, it's by this, if we're living this way, that we know that we know God. We will know that we are of the truth because we do things that are characteristic of the truth. Again, it walks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, it must be a duck. By these things, we will know 
So kind of as a sub-point to that, assurance of redemption comes through obedience. Assurance of redemption comes through obedience. Again, this is kind of the human source of assurance. This love for the brethren is obedience to God. Right? Now, let's talk about the word know here in the passage. He says, by this we shall know. One thing you need to know is that the know in the passage is in the future tense. He's not saying that by this love for the brethren, you will know right now. His, his point is not that. His point with it being in the future, he's talking about a moment in the future when you will face a crisis of wondering whether or not you know God. He's saying there's going to come a time in the future when you're going to sit there and your heart's going to condemn you. And he says in that moment what you need to do is you need to look back and you need to go, do I have a love for the brethren? Do I have these things that he's talked about thus far in the book of 1 John? Belief, right belief, love for the brethren, obedience, righteousness. He's saying, by this we shall know. So he's saying, by all these things, when you get to that point in the future, when, you, when your heart is condemning you, look back and you should know that by these things that you can reassure your heart. There's a futuristic point to what he is saying here. Now the big question is this. What happens when you examine and realize that you do indeed fall short? What happens when you examine and you realize, man, I'm not doing well at loving the brethren. I'm not doing well at living righteously. So you love your brethren, but you don't love them as fully as you should. Or maybe you cannot claim freedom from sin as John is speaking of here. John says this in verse 20, For whenever our heart condemns us, what's he say? God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. Guys, the idea here is that even upon examination resulting in no assurance of our salvation, we can trust ourselves to God. We can trust ourselves to God. Now, I don't think this is a license for us to say, well, I can live however I want to and just trust God, right? That he's been fighting against that. Disregard for unrighteousness, he's, he's fighting against that. So we can't say that. That's not the point. The point is, is I can earnestly follow Christ, and even in those moments when I feel condemned, I can trust myself to the mercy of God who knows all things. And Christian, I, I just want to encourage you, I hope, I hope there comes days where, where your heart condemns you. And you have to throw yourself upon trusting God. Where you can't look at your works and go, okay, yes, I am a follower of Jesus. But you look at your works and go, man, how unrighteous am I? And then have to trust yourself to the mercy of God. Guys, in, in, in modern church culture, I mean, we're all familiar with this, we have such, such a self-righteous, self-dependence attitude. And John says, yes, you need to evaluate your following, but even in the dark times, it ultimately comes down to trusting God. Are you going to trust God? 
is God trustworthy? So guys, the greatest assurance of redemption is that God knows whom He has redeemed. The greatest assurance of redemption in this passage is that God knows whom He has redeemed. That's what John's saying here. He's saying, even when your heart says that you're not a follower of God, God knows. He knows this. And He knows whether you are or whether you're not. The greatest assurance of redemption, guys, is the fact that God would know who. The very fact that He knows our hearts with that kind of depth, that He could look into it and go, yes, this is a follower of mine. No, this is not. There's no confusion when it comes to this for God. Praise God, right? You and I might be confused. He's never confused. Let's read Paul. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3 through 5. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3 through 5. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, listen to Paul here, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul leads us to understand that no judgment is ultimate other than God. So when you get into that moment, your heart is condemning you. Are you placing your hope in your accurate assessment of your life? Or are you placing your hope in God's ultimate, accurate assessment of your life? Are you placing your hope in yourself as judge or placing your hope in God as judge? As Paul says, it's interesting because if you look, he says, I do not even judge myself. But then he says, for I'm not aware of anything against myself. What did he just do? He judged himself, right? For I'm not aware of anything against myself. He just judged himself. But he's saying judge in the sense of, I don't judge myself in an ultimate sense. That's the, 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 the flavor of the passage there or the context is, He's saying, yes, I, I examine my life and I make a judgment, but I, that judgment of my life doesn't trump God's judgment. I trust God's judgment before I trust my judgment. His, encourage, his encouragement in light of John here, Paul's encouragement in light of John here would be, don't judge yourself in an ultimate sense. Trust that to God. Now, I want to encourage us as a church that we can entrust ourselves to the judgment of God who knows all about us. Let me ask you a question. If the thought of, I'm not a follower of God, do you trust God that even if you were not redeemed and you were indeed headed to hell, would you still trust God? Would you still say, I mean, that really stinks. I really would like to go to heaven. I really would like to worship God. And, but, if, but if that's what He has for me, then, then that's what would best glorify Him. Could you say that? Now, obviously, that would be a little hard for you to say that if you were indeed redeemed. 
But could you trust God with that judgment? Now this is not a, well, God will surely look at the good I've done. Right? This is not what, this is not what we're getting at. Is Well, God's going to take the good that I've done and, and kind of weigh it up next to the bad that I've done. And, and, and He's a good judge, so I'm pretty sure He'll look over the things, you know, cast aside the things I did in ignorance and maybe the things I did when I was young and stupid and, and the things that I didn't have good enough teaching on. So God's just going to kind of look over all those sins that happened at that point in my life and He's going to look at the good things I did and, and He'll be a good judge about that. Is, that. is that the point of the passage? That's, I don't see that. John's talking about being righteous. It's also not, well, God just knows my heart. Well, God just knows my heart. He, yo, we're good. That's, that's not John's point. This is, God knows who His children are. And we can rest our hearts in Him even when we feel condemned. 1 Timothy 2.19 says this, But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who those who are His. The Lord knows those who are His. How does God know? How does God know who are His? I mean, clearly because He knows everything. That's what John just told us. But I just want to encourage you guys with something I think is just wonderful, and I know it's a hard pill for some of us to swallow, but let's read Ephesians 1, verse 11 through 14. 1, 11 through 14 says, In Him... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things, according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. How does He know who His children are? He chose His children. This is the sweetness of the doctrine of election, that God knows His children because He chose to rescue them. If I'm going to adopt a child from out of the country, how, how do I know when I get that child back here, how do I know that this child is mine? Because I went and chose it, didn't I? He's mine or she's mine. How? Because I went and chose her. I went and chose him. I brought him into my fold. Now, there's also other ways in which God knows who his children are, but I think largely he knows who his children are because he chose them. Now, children of God, because God chooses rest, it's not an opportunity to be prideful. It's an opportunity to rest. Say, yeah, I'm God, thank you. If He was merciful enough to redeem you, then rest. If He was merciful or gracious enough to choose you, then rest. Paul says again here in this passage in Ephesians that we were sealed in the promised Holy Spirit. So those whom He chose, He also sealed them. Rest. Guys, a God that isn't powerful enough to choose is not a God that's powerful enough to rest in. Because I, I would make the argument if God didn't choose, if He's not sovereign over those who would be saved, then He cannot be sovereign over those who remain saved. 
So you follow me on that? Now think, if God can't be sovereign over who is saved, then He can't be sovereign over who remains saved. <clears throat> if you all have questions with that, we can work through that. Just so you know, I know that's a, a big pill to swallow. Now, let's think about the implications for our relationship with, with God. The people genuinely, here in this passage, genuinely wanted their hearts at rest in God's presence. That's what they were looking for. They wanted their hearts to rest in God's presence. The passage says, and reassure our heart before Him. That's what 1 John says here. The idea is that how could we approach God in prayer when we feel condemned? That's why I asked you earlier, who wants to go talk to their father when they feel condemned? You know, we'll, we ask questions like this, will God hear me? Will God cast me from His presence? Am I even a child of His? Right? This is a condemning heart, the fruit of a condemning heart. John's point here is that no matter how much our heart condemns us, God still welcomes and forgives the man who seeks forgiveness and casts himself upon God's mercy. Again, the idea here is, is not to give assurance to those who care little about God. The idea here is to give assurance to those who are genuinely seeking God, those who are striving to keep His commands, those who are striving to love the body of Christ. That's the point. The point is to give assurance to those. So John has turned from a follower of Jesus lives like he He's been talking about a follower of Jesus lives this way to what happens when upon evaluation our heart condemns us. How do we move forward? How do we deal with that? Now I just want to say, just pause for just a moment with you. Think with me for a second. Isn't it wonderful that John thought about those who are genuinely following Jesus but struggle in dark moments about whether or not they are genuinely redeemed? Let me ask you, anybody here struggle they believe they're following Jesus, and then there's those times where you go, man, I, I just don't know, and your heart just condemns you. Anybody? I mean, am I alone on this? Anybody else? Yeah? Yeah. I hope, I hope this is encouraging as we work through this. The paradox here is that you can find assurance in your human responsibility, and you can find assurance in the character and the being of God, right? So there's assurance in looking at is my obedience lining up? But there's assurance in resting in the fact that God knows who His children are. He knows your heart better than you do. Why? Because He's the one that's about the business of restoring your heart to the way that it should be. Guys, I pray that you find yourself often in these moments when, when you see your sinfulness and then remind your heart that He knows everything. Guys, God is saying, you can trust me with your redemption. So if you consider yourself a follower of Christ, let me ask you this question. Do you trust God with your redemption? Or is redemption something that you're working hard on? Do you genuinely trust God with your redemption? Or do you continue to pull your trust from Him and put it in Maybe your own righteousness. You know, I have to read my Bible so many times, then God will hear my prayer. 
or I have such a dark past, it's no wonder that God isn't answering my prayers. Maybe you're trusting in your own redemption, your own work. I just encourage you to write down this question, what does not trusting God with our redemption result in? I think it's a good question for you to ask this week. What does not trusting God with our redemption result in? Christians, hear me on this. Listen. Rest in God's redeeming work. He can handle it much better than you can. Now, if you don't think you're a Christian or you don't know if you're a Christian or not, I wonder the same question. Do you trust God with your redemption? And I would encourage you that your continual pursuit of appeasing God on your own terms shows that you do not trust in His redemption. Guys, this is what trusting in God's redemption looks like. It's trusting in Jesus' work on the cross as a substitution of payment for your sins before a holy God. Trust in Him for your redemption. So now, as we move forward in the text, we move on from a condemning heart, but, but that has the assurance of God's character to further think through the idea of the Spirit's assurance and a heart that doesn't condemn. Okay, that's where we're going. So the next kind of big thought is the wonder of the Spirit's assurance and a heart that doesn't condemn. The wonder of this. Verse 21, it says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. When our heart doesn't condemn us, we have confidence to stand before God. We have confidence to walk before the throne of God. We have confidence to live in this relationship with God. And that's part of why it's such an important matter that we walk with assurance of our faith. Because guys, if we're not concerned about walking with God... then there's a lot more trouble that awaits us. This side of eternity and the other side of eternity. Now John turns to the practical outworking of this confidence. He wants to, practically, what does this look like? And, we get, and he says we get to make requests to God with boldness, with expectation. Look at verse th- 22, 1 John 3, 22. I'll come back to that point in a second, right, right above it. He says, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what He pleases. So this is the kind of the practical outworking of a heart that has confidence is that he gets to ask and he will receive. Because why? Because he's keeping these commandments and he enters into God's presence and asking God with confidence. So the point here is a heart living in the realm of the light will always be satisfied in their requests to God. Hearts living in the realm of the light will always be satisfied in their requests to God. Now that statement is a very loaded statement. And we're going to work through that. Alright, so look what John says. And whatever we ask, just look plainly at the text. Verse 22. And whatever we ask, we ask from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. He says we receive from God anything that we ask. How astonishing! 
We get whatever we ask. It's amazing. I mean, that's a crazy statement, just like the sinlessness of a believer or the perfection and love that he's been talking about in 1 John all along. The fact that we should be striving for sinlessness. That we should have this perfection in our love. I mean, behind what John says here is what John says in the Gospel of John, in verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 13 to 14. He says, whatever, Jesus, 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 Jesus says this. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Wow! Again, in the words of my systematic professor, astonishing, right? It really is. Now clearly this is a statement that can be easily misunderstood. Clearly this is a statement that often gets pulled out of context, right? I'm sure people write this passage, put it up on their, uh, on their mirror in the morning and say, I just got to ask what I want in Jesus' name and it will be given to me this week. Praise God. You want to name it, I'm going to claim it, it's mine. And God, you better give it to me. So the context is crucial. Let's work through the context here on this passage, right? Context. Notice what John has been saying thus far in this letter. I don't go back and rehash all of it, but notice what John has been saying in this letter so far. He says, faith looks like, or someone who's following God, they look like this. They look like obedience. They look like love for the brethren. They look like right belief, desire for right belief. Notice what John says in this very verse. Keep his commandments and do what pleases him, right? And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Overall, John is describing someone who's living in the light. Again, someone who's been made into a duck, and so now they walk like a duck and quack like a duck. right? John just finished. Now, guys, here, here's this context is so important. John just finished what, he t- what we talked about last week. He just finished talking about someone who is willing to lay down his life for another human, and then everything in sacrificial work towards that other human, that other brother in the faith, everything in between now and death, and giving our lives to them. John isn't going to now turn and say, and whatever your selfish little heart wants, you can have. Right? So just context, John is talking about someone who's laying down their lives for someone else, just as Jesus laid down his life. So how, how is it, I get to lay down my life for my brother, but then when I get to talk to God, it's all about me. That's why it's important in the context here, because John isn't saying, well, you just get to, yes, whatever you ask, I will give, but the point is, is don't, you don't get to ask whatever you want to ask. That makes sense? That's the question. Well, if I get to, if I can have whatever I ask for, what can I ask for? Right? This person who gets to ask is driven by the fact that eternal life now dwells inside of him. So what is this person who gets anything that they ask? What do they get to ask? They get to ask anything that the Holy Spirit and the eternal life of Jesus Christ living inside them asks for. Why is that a good thing? 
because our God is good and wants what's good for us. So what is it that we get to ask and will always be answered for the good is the things we ask according to God's will. Say, all right, Matt, well, how'd you get there? Again, back to the context. We've just talked about just thus far, what's the context prior to the verse? Now what's the context after the verse? 1 John 5, 14, so just not even two chapters later, he says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to what? His will. He hears us. You say, well, that just means he hears it. Yeah, well, if he doesn't hear it, then he can't answer it. So the only thing he hears is that which you ask according to his will. So this passage, this verse cannot be just, well, whatever you ask God. So I need a new car. I need a new house. I, I want my, uh, my marriage to be fixed. Or I, I want my, my kids to follow Jesus. I mean, yes, those are good prayers to have. But are they God's will? Are they God's will? And, and they might be. I'm not saying that they're not. It might be God's will for you to have a different house. I mean, there's two people in our church right now that were praying that God would, would give them a new place to live. But what we want more importantly, that it's God's will that, that they move, or it's God's will the place that they go to. Do you see the difference? And I know it's not just a difference of semantics, it's a difference of perception and the stance of the heart. That my heart doesn't just desire what my agenda is, but my heart desires what God's agenda is and God's will for my life. Because ultimately it's not my life, it's his. So John's point here is considering the context, is this. John is saying. Those following Jesus, those whom eternal life dwells in, will be living in the light, right? This is what John's been saying. They'll be living in the light, this righteousness and obedience. And in doing so, their desires will be continually becoming one and the same with God's desires. And the result is that this heart will have all it might ever want or imagine. Guys, do you find your heart dissatisfied often is it you answer me yes i mean not out loud but shake your head yes or no do you find your heart often dissatisfied i would encourage you to think through am i desiring things that god doesn't desire because if your heart desires the things that god desires you'll have everything you could ever want so even thinking in the salvation of my kids, guys, I'm not saying I'm perfect at this, but I really find hope and satisfaction in saying, yes, God, if it is your will to redeem my children's hearts, then, then thank you. And if it's not, I trust you. And I'm going to do everything I can to teach my kids God. I'm going to do everything I can to show them the gospel. I mean, right, because that's my calling. And I'm going to ask God, God, please redeem them. Please lead me to redeem them. But Father, I trust you. I trust you. I mean, I'm not going to say it doesn't like the thought of my kids not being in heaven. With Yes, that bothers me. I'm not cold and indifferent towards that. But do I trust God with that? And the fact is God loves my kids more than I could ever love my kids. And he cares about them more than I could ever care about them. 
So John is saying, those who dwell in the light ask for things according to God's will and not their selfish will. So I think the picture, perfect example of this is Jesus in the garden. God, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. But Father, not my will, but yours be done, right? I mean, none of us are ever going to experience the pain in which Jesus was getting ready to experience. Nothing will ever compare to the bearing of the wrath of God for all the sins of those whom God would redeem. None of us will experience that kind of pain. And he says, not my will, but yours. Right? The salvation of my kids, as painful as that is, it's still not the pain of bearing the weight of God's wrath for all those whom God would redeem. It's, and he says, not my will, but yours. Now, the beautiful thing about this, guys, is like when it comes to the redemption of my kids, if I trust and desire the will of God, then what should happen? Like, then the will of God's will be working out in my lives, and the kids are going to see a heart that is submissive to the will of God. And, and that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing for my kids to see and to watch. What are the chances of my kids falling in love with God when their daddy is more in love with God than his kids? Chances are much greater, right? So, John's point is that the Christian is to be a person who obeys the commands of God and pleases God, just as Jesus always did what pleased God. John is not saying here, though, guys, that when we obey, we get what we want. Let's make sure we're clear on that. He's not saying if we obey, we get what we want. That's not John's point. Jesus, John is thinking here of a relationship, guys, between a father and his children. Go back to chapter 3, verse 1. He's thinking of a father and his children, and a relationship characterized by love. Guys, hear me on this. Any thoughts of doing good simply to win favors from God is absolutely excluded from the context here. This is where TBN and most of their preachers get this terribly wrong. We do not chant sayings in order to manipulate God. We don't get to quote little cool things and that means God's got to give this to me. I'm going to name, I'm going to claim this, you know. And God's going to give it to me. Guys, in a loving relationship, you do what is best for the other person regardless of anything that's received. Right? Like, I do what is absolutely best for my boys in my finite ability as a human. I do what's absolutely best for them, whether they give me what I want or not. Right? Whether they show love to me. I mean, I, I'll tell you this, man. I still, like, when my boy, you know, when, when, when Chap, my boy, I got three. Uh, but when, like, when Chapman says, I love you, Dad, like, there's still a part of me that goes, you don't even understand what love means. And so, yes, I, mean, I kind of find a little bit of joy in that love, but he doesn't know what that word means. Now, when he comes and gives me a hug or shows me affection, I'm going, okay, this is a little more of an outworking of love. But my point is this, is even in not having necessarily a reciprocation of love and receiving this, this deep affection that I want my boy to have for me, I still do what's best for him. I still give him things that are best for him. That's the kind of relationship that we have with God. He does what's best 
for you regardless of whether or not you reciprocate the kind of love that you've been called to show and, and worship God with. So it's not a matter of, I can do these things to manipulate God into getting what I want. Instead, you obey Him because you love Him. Right? You do what's best for the Father because you love the Father. Right? It's not I do what's best for the Father so that He can give me what I want. And He doesn't do what's best for you so that He can get what He wants from you. He does what's best for you because He loves you. And you do what's best for Him because you love Him. That's the relationship John's talking about here. It's not one of manipulation. This is where a lot of parents go wrong with their kids. Is Well, I'm going to show you love and affection only when you do what is right. Or I'm going to make you earn everything. No, there's some things that you just cannot earn. And to teach your kids that they have to earn everything is to show them dependence on themselves apart from God. No, there's certain things that my kids are going to get that they didn't earn and they could never earn. So Christians, guys, anything else other than doing it for the Father because you love the Father, doing it to get things back is manipulation. Now Christians, let me ask you this. How are you missing out on the Father's on, on this father-child relationship with God because you're trying to sovereignly direct or manipulate God to accomplish your will by even doing righteous things. What are you missing out on? John's purpose is to encourage us to enter fully into this son-daughter-slash-relationship in which God delights to hear and answer the requests of His children. I know for many of us, we just have a jacked up view of God. I would encourage you, Father is a wonderful one to work on. Understanding that we're children of God's. The more we enter into this relationship, the more we will ask in accordance with His will. Think about this. What good father doesn't want to treat his kids wonderfully? What good father doesn't want to give his kid everything that is good for them? I'm not talking about give them every toy they might ever want. I'm talking about giving them what is good for them. What good father doesn't want to do that? How much more our heavenly father? Think about this. What good son or daughter doesn't want to know the father so that he or she might live in line with his desires? Again, what good son or daughter does not want to honor daddy, mommy, by learning his or her desires so that they might live in a way that honors mom or dad. So, second to last big point here is obeying God's commands in summary, right belief and love for the body. He says this, verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of, I guess I went a little quick on that one, all right, you guys got that right belief and love for the body. All right, 1 John 3, 23. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. So now John really summarized what it mean, summarizes what it means to obey God's commands. So if I'm going to live this life, what does it mean to obey God's commands? Notice that commandment in the passage is singular, right? And this is His commandment no s it's singular 
John's point is that what he's about to say is really one command, not two. There's a unity of these things. There's a connectedness of these things. So much so that this one command, it's really one command having two parts. Now it's interesting that we get to this and he says, and love one another. And this is where many Christians, particularly, uh, well not many Christians, I would say those who are lost but think that they're followers of Jesus, they often conclude that the whole point of Christianity is that we would just love one another. Right? I mean, you guys have heard that out there. Well, we just got to love one another. There's no right belief that accompanies this often. They may have belief, but not the right belief. And John says it's not just that we would love one another, but that we would have right belief. Now, the idea of believe here, let's think about this believe here in this passage. John has alluded to this in the encouragement to hold to the incarnation. That there's, a, there's an importance of right belief. But as we've seen so far, this is more than just belief in something. Again, it's a stress here on right belief. John says, believe what? Believe something about Jesus? Like believe that there's this person named Jesus? No, he says, believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. That's a big statement that John's saying there. There's a lot. Talking about the office of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ. There's a lot wrapped up in that one statement. In the context, he's talking about asking things according to the will of God and what obedience looks like for someone who asks and receives what he asks for. Right? So that's the context. So it's important, we're going to live out this faith that we ask and we believe rightly in the name of the Son of God. So how do I know that I know God? It's not just a mental agreement of who this person is but a trust in this person who is the object of the Christian faith. Right? So let me help you, because I think we'll miss this. John is saying, belief in the name of the Son of God. For what purpose? What have we been talking about this whole time? Assurance. Combating a condemning heart. But more importantly, what's the immediate context in the verse right before it? Or the couple verses right before it? That what we would ask, we would receive. So it's this idea of living this life with God and asking and living God's will. What's important for living God's will? Belief in the name of the Son of God. So it's not just belief in the name of the Son of God just so I got my cards right so that I can you know, get the right ticket and get to heaven. That's not the point. The point is that we would trust in the name of the Son of God. For what purpose? That we would ask the right things. That we would receive the things that we ask for. That we would live according to God's will. It's not just this fact for fact's sake. It's fact for purpose's sake. Which means that it's, it can't be just a mental assent in this fact of who Jesus was, but a trust in who this person is. That's this idea of belief here, of course. So that's, that's the one part of the command. The second part of the command is that we would love the brethren. That we'd have a love for the people of God. If you have no love for the people of God, that trumps your love for this world, then John would say you're not a follower of God. 
So, in the beginning, we saw this assurance comes from the fruit of our redemption, right? The fruit of our redemption being righteousness, love for the brethren, right belief. Then we saw that even in evaluating that fruit, our heart could still condemn us. And then John says, you can trust God. Once again, John says, whoever keeps his commands has assurance. But then quickly again, right now, takes us to, we can evaluate our right belief and stuff, but our heart can still condemn us. So he takes us now away from human assurance to divine assurance and says in verse 24 that ultimately the Spirit gives assurance concerning our redemption. Ultimately, the Spirit gives assurance concerning our redemption. Look at verse 24. We're almost done. He says, Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us, by the Spirit He has given us. If you didn't get that last point, it's ultimately the Spirit gives assurance. Guys, I know, I know that I know God because I abide in Him because I'm keeping His commandments. Let's think through this. Note that in chapter 2, verse 6, John told us, you can look back later in chapter 2, verse 6, John told us that the person who lives in Him ought to walk as Jesus did. The person who lives in God ought to walk as Jesus did. Now we are told that the person who obeys His commands lives in Him. Later, John will tell us that if we love one another, God lives in us. John's point is that obeying God's commands is an expression of our spiritual life. Again, it's not we keep His commands and therefore we abide in Him. It's our keeping His commands as evidence that we abide in Him. Now, even still, our hearts are tempted to condemn us. Are we genuinely in right relationship with God? Remember, even on our best day, we will live imperfectly. But thank God there is assurance that is more sure than our ability to reason and analyze. We can know that we know God by the Spirit whom God has given us. That's interesting. Let's think through this for a second. We can have assurance because of the Spirit that is in us. I think it's very interesting that at this point, John does not tell us what the Spirit that's within us looks like. Let me give you an example. He does not say that this Spirit in us is evidenced by speaking in tongues. He does not say that this is evidenced by praying a certain amount of hours a day or living on a certain budget, or going to church X amount of times per week. He doesn't say that, this is ev- that the Spirit is evidenced by saying a certain prayer, or a sinner's prayer, or walking a church aisle, or being a member of a church. He doesn't say those things here. I think if John would have given us what this looks like, then, then the experience would have become the worshipped thing. If John would have said that the Spirit within you is evidenced by speaking in tongues, then the speaking in tongues would become that which we worshipped, not the actual Holy Spirit. There's a danger there. 
So I think for, like for charismatics, the danger is baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's their, their danger. For Baptists, it's not drinking alcohol, not smoking, and wearing a suit. Like that's the, that's the uh, evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life, right? Um, <laughs> I don't wear a suit. I guess I'm in trouble. Uh, liberal, Methodists, and Presbyterians, it's being accepting and open-minded. That's evidence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the denomination of the Church of Christ, water baptism, I think is arguably their worshipped experience. Now I know, right, I'm going to play with you guys for just a second here. I know you legalistic people think that this makes Christianity very tough. Now, now I know none of us would consider us legalistic, so just hear me out for a second. I, we, want to be able to point to a thing and say, I'm redeemed. I've done this, therefore I'm redeemed. I've experienced this, therefore I'm redeemed. But the Christian walk is so much more complex than that. It's so much more beautiful than simply speaking in tongues or not drinking. It's much more beautiful than not drinking alcohol or not smoking. As the Christian life is a life that lives by faith in the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It's a life that loves the brethren as God loved them. It's a life that even when we condemn ourselves, we trust in the fact that God knows everything. So I would encourage you to look at the Scriptures and ask the question, what does the indwelling of the Holy Spirit look like? What does this look like? I'll give you some examples. It looks like someone who always submits to the Father and the Son. But is that a grand, miraculous experience, right? Is that something I can look to and go, wow, that was crazy and unique, so I must be a follower of Jesus? No, it was... It's probably a pretty boring thing. <laughs> he always submitted to someone else. Wow, that sounds exciting. Right? The Holy Spirit is always the one behind the scenes that no one ever sees. I'm not saying that you, I mean, clearly I'm out, out front. Everyone's looking at me. I mean, so, you know what I'm saying? But the Holy Spirit is someone who submits to the Father. Another thing we see about the Holy Spirit is that He always glorifies the Son. I think he asked a question, do you live your life in such a way that glorifies the Son? How about the Holy Spirit always brings change to those around Him, but not just any change, gospel change. Are the people around you loving God more? This is something the Holy Spirit does. Now sometimes those around the Holy Spirit hate God more, but they certainly don't stay in one place. In those dark moments, only the Holy Spirit can speak divine assurance to us. Right? So as we close up, a follower of Christ, those who desire to be faithful to His call, those who believe in the name of the Son of God, those who strive to love the brethren, those are the kind of the big three in 1 John. But do you have those moments, those days, those weeks where your heart condemns you? John is encouraging you to do this, two things. One, examine your life. Are you developing right belief? Is there obedience and or desire for obedience? Is there love for the brethren? He says then rest. Rest, but don't just rest in yourself. Ultimately, you can trust God. You can trust Him with your redemption. Rest in Him. Rest in God. So, I want to pray for us as we get ready to sing our last song today, um, that we would find rest.
in God from a heart that condemns. Father, thank you for your word this morning. I pray that it was edifying to your people. Father, I pray that uh, this condemning heart that many of us have faced, are facing, and or will face, Father, that we would have this perspective and this guidance from 1 John brought to the forefront of our mind in those situations where we can look at it and say, Father, I see evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in my life. Love, joy, patience, peace, kindness. I see those things. I also see evidence of, of you working through me to bring about obedience and righteousness. And so, Father, I thank you for those things. Father, I can still enter into your presence with boldness and confidence. And Father, my condemning heart is a reality. It's true. It's not something to be ignored. If anything, it should spur me on to more God dependence. So Father, in those moments when a heart condemns us, Father, I pray that we would walk away recognizing our need for you more than we did when that condemning heart began. Father, thank you for your graciousness. In your son's name I pray, amen. Will you guys stand with us?